So in our family, we may do something a little bit different. I don't know, some of you might do this too. So uh, it's obviously a season of giving. So we do a lot of Christmas presents around uh, this Christmas season. But if you were to go to our house, you would not find one of these under our tree right now. In fact, you would not find one of these under our tree for the next 20 something days. We do not put any of our Christmas presents out under the tree before Christmas. Would you like to know why? Parents might understand this. What happens when you start putting these under the tree? And then after they look and after they shake and after they start to peek, do you know what question starts to come up? When can I open it? Is it Christmas yet? When can I open my present? How about now? Is it time yet? How about today? What if we open one just a little bit early? What if I open just a few of them? Could I just take a look? Could I just see a little bit? Is it time yet? And so Becky and I had discovered this early on, like that question cannot be answered enough. Every time we get asked, hey, is it Christmas yet? Our response would always be the same. No, we even have one of these ornaments on our tree that has the countdown so they can see. No, there are still 20 something days left and this many minutes and this many seconds. When that hits zero, you are gonna be able to open your presents. And it wouldn't be three minutes later. Is it time yet? So we got tired of answering that question that always got asked, is it time, how about now? So we just said, you know what? We're just gonna wait. We're gonna leave it all empty until that time so we don't have to keep hearing that question. Could you imagine though, I mean, at least with our kids, there's a date I can point to. Again, I've got that ornament. I can say, well, go look at the ornament. On the 25th, you can open your presents. At least there's a date and there's a time when finally, yes, I can open the presents. Could you imagine what it would be like to put these presents underneath the tree, putting them maybe in the, on the dining room table and say, hey kids, these are for you. And I'm never gonna tell you when you can have them. Like, could you imagine what would happen in your household if it was always there, always there? And they would say, well, how about today? Is today the day? And you'd say, nope. And they would say, well, what about tomorrow? Would tomorrow be the day? He's like, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. And you would just always have it in front of them, but you would never tell them when they could actually have it. That is the tension that Christmas is. The Christmas story lived in that tension of, and you're gonna hear this word a ton this morning, in the tension of waiting, the tension of waiting. Throughout scripture, specifically talking in the Old Testament, there's really a major theme. They go hand in hand. Even from the very, very beginning of the creation story in Genesis, there's this theme of us as humans seeing our inability to save ourselves, so therefore we need a savior. Right? We see that time and time again. And all the stories that we talk about and all the stories that you read, they all come back to somewhat of that same theme of we as human beings are sinful and we cannot save ourselves. No matter how hard we try, we cannot save ourselves. So we need a savior. Now, God, in all of his graciousness, throughout the Old Testament, which if you were to look, at least in my Bible, there's your Old Testament right there. So throughout the Old Testament, there are hundreds, truly hundreds of prophecies and promises that point to that Savior. 
Like, yes, I know you can't save yourself. And yes, I know it's really dark right now. And yes, I know it's very difficult right now. And I know that it feels like there's no hope. But God constantly, hundreds of different times through different people says, but a savior is coming. He keeps pointing to, we call them prophecies. They're basically promises that point to our savior, that point to Jesus. Hundreds of them. But do you know what none of them have? An exact day and time. In fact, one of those prophecies, I'm sure some of you have heard this before. I'll put it on the screen. You don't have to follow along quite yet. Isaiah chapter nine, starting in verse six. Very famous around this time. A lot of these prophecies just have to do with Jesus. Many of them have to do with the birth of Jesus. Isaiah chapter nine, starting in verse six. Keep in mind, this was written 700 years before Jesus was ever born. The promise or the prophecy is this, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called, and I love these names, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and his government and its peace will never end. There might be some of you that you just needed to hear that part. You just needed to hear that Jesus is wonderful counselor. Notice these are not descriptions of Jesus. These are names given to Jesus that he is, he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. Oh, that sounds amazing. That his reign will never end. What an incredible gift. What an incredible promise. The only problem with that promise is what we said. There's no time attached to it. So you could imagine being one of the Israelites in this time when Isaiah said this, I know it's difficult right now, but there will be a day when a savior comes and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. It's gonna be great. And they all ask the same question. Awesome, when? Is it like happening now? And Isaiah would have to have said, um, well, like probably, I mean, I don't know. Probably not yet. Well, how about tomorrow? Is this child gonna be born tomorrow? I, I, I don't know. How about next year? Maybe in a year, can we think like, can we put a date on it? Can we say next year? I don't know. And all of a sudden, it feels like that never ending car trip. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? How much longer? Are we there yet? How about now? I gotta go to the bathroom. How much longer? <laughs> We don't like to wait for anything. In fact, this even right here, a cup of coffee. I'll tell you something about myself. Early on um, in, my, in my days, early on in marriage at least, um, I became what would be known as a coffee snob. Coffee snobs, you don't want to admit to it. Some of you are like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> Here's what that means. That means we are high maintenance when it comes to our coffee. We like really, really good coffee and we like it prepared the right way. And yes, there is a right way to prepare coffee. So early on in my marriage, I was a coffee snob where I would, I didn't go to the whole, some of you are way too extreme and actually roasted your own coffee beans. I didn't do that, but I would grind them myself because the grind is important. And then after I would grind them, I would use a French press and I would get my water hot using a separate hot water kettle that was only used for coffee only used for hot water. And you cannot boil that water because then that burns your water. So you would get it at just the right temperature and then you would put it in your French press. And there's a whole amount of time that you have to wait and then you press and then you wait and then it is the best cup of coffee you'll ever have. So that's how I started our marriage. And my wife was like, you are crazy. What's, what have I done? Like this is a cup of coffee. 
As time went on, and I will admit, most of these changes happened when I started, we started having kids. That all of a sudden, the time that it took to do coffee the right way wasn't as, as appealing anymore at three in the morning trying to take care of a newborn. I'm like, I'm not going through that. I can't even find my French press. So then I moved over to a pour over. I still did the water the way it was supposed to be done. I still would grind my coffee beans, but instead of doing the whole waiting for the French press, I would just do a pour over. Then that even became a little too tedious and too long. So then I got my first ever coffee machine, like the drip one with the filters. I'd never done this before. Like, this is how normal people make coffee. Fascinating. It's a lot faster. So I started using that coffee machine. Even that started to take too long. So I remember about four years ago, I bought my first Keurig. And I'm like, where have you been my whole life? You mean I can stumble downstairs, put this in there, shut it, push a button, walk and go over, get my other stuff that I need for breakfast, and it's done? Oh, I'll never go back. I couldn't tell you where my French press is today whatsoever. But I'll admit, something happened a couple years ago. That cure got too slow. Believe it or not, the cure got too slow. So you know what I do now? I pay $8.99 every single month for an unlimited coffee subscription at Panera Bread right here in Dawsonville. I don't even use my Keurig anymore. It's like, if I need coffee, I'm just gonna drive to Panera real quick. On my, I'll even leave my car running in the parking lot, go and get my coffee, and then run out again. We don't like to wait, do we? Nothing is fast enough. Nothing is quick enough. We don't like to wait. So let's go back here to what the Israelites would have heard from Isaiah. How about now? How about now? How much longer do we have to wait? So Isaiah gives this promise, this prophecy. Let's fast forward about 300 years of waiting. 300 years of waiting, you get to this point right here in your Bible. Do you know what this part is in your Bible? This is where the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins. There's the beginning of the New Testament. Now for us in our Bibles, we can go from Malachi chapter four, flip it over and oh, hey, look, there's Matthew chapter one. That one flip of the page equals 400 years, 400 years. And that's already waiting after the 300 years from Isaiah. So can you do some math here? 400 years, and not just 400 years of waiting, this is where it gets very difficult, 400 years of silence. At least during Isaiah's time, God was speaking through Isaiah as a prophet. And if you keep going through your Old Testament, you see plenty of other stories where God is talking through other people. But once he finishes talking through the prophet Malachi, silence. 400 years of nothingness. No prophet, no burning bush moments, no judges, no kings hearing from God, nothing. And you would have to imagine that during that 400 years, God, where are you? God, are you even listening? God, where did you go? What did we do? At least before we could say, how about now? And we at least heard a no. Now we say, how about now? And we don't hear anything. 400 years of silence. Now we're gonna talk about the story where God breaks that silence. But before we get there, I need to give you a little bit more context of what happens between that Old and New Testament. In church world, we call that the intertestamental period, that 400 years of silence between Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament when God speaks. 
that 400 years, here's what I want you to know about that, and then I'll give you a small little history lesson, plenty for you to research on your own if you want, but I'll give you a small piece. Here's what you need to know. God is working while we're waiting. Bottom line. God is still working when we are waiting. Those 400 years that the Israelites were waiting, that we can just flip real quick, that 400 years know that God was still working even when they didn't hear from him, that God was still working even when they were still waiting. And here's how we know that. A little bit of a history lesson. You're not gonna see that in these pages here. But if you studied history, there's two major things that happened in that 400 years that we have very, very good records of historically. The first one is knowing that the Persian empire was ruling the Israelites by the beginning of this intertestamental period, right? We talked about that when we did our Nehemiah study. So Persia was the world power. Well, a guy by the name of Alexander Great decided he wanted to do something with his life, and he began to conquer the known world and overthrew the Persian Empire. Alexander the Great, he not only conquered, he also spread Greek culture. One of the main demands of Alexander the Great was whoever was under his empire had to know a common language, which became known as the Greek language, which your New Testament is originally written in that language that Alexander the Great demanded. So everybody in the known world was now speaking, or at least able to speak and understand a common language, which was very new for that area. Years and years later, a lot of other regimes came and went, but then you have the Caesars in Rome. They finally became the world power. And what's significant about them is they brought infrastructure to the known world, mainly roads. So it became very easy to travel from one place to the next in this region of the world. I say that because in those 400 years, we just said that God was working. So know that when it's time for Jesus to be born, the stage has been set, that God had been working behind the scenes, getting everything ready for that moment the silence would be broken, for that moment that Jesus would come. Because when Jesus was born, there was a common language that everybody could understand and hear so they would be able to understand the good news of Jesus and the gospel wherever it went. The roads that the Romans put in place would allow the gospel and Jesus' message and Jesus himself with his disciples. Read through the early parts of Acts and you'll see how the gospel spread as they used the roads that Rome put in place. So yes, 400 years is a long time to wait. But was God absent? Absolutely not. God was working behind the scenes to get the stage ready for the greatest news that this world would ever, ever hear. And there was a common language for people to understand it in, and there was the roads that allowed it to be carried. So we get through the 400 years and God working behind the scenes, and then yes, finally, finally, the silence is broken. So now, if you've got your Bibles, I know it took us a while to get to this part. If you've got your Bibles, be in Luke chapter one. This is when God first breaks the silence after 400 years of silence and waiting, he finally breaks the silence with this story. Now, a little bit of a spoiler alert. This is part of the Christmas story, but it is not part of your nativity scene at home right now. <laughs> the story that we're going to read, you usually don't read about, usually don't hear about in terms of the Christmas story. These characters might even be new to you, but I promise it's an important aspect to the story, and it's especially important because this is when the silence was broken. The first time that God spoke after this 400 years of silence was not to Mary and Joseph about Jesus. It was to an old couple about, a, about their child to be born named John. So here's the story, Luke chapter one, starting in verse five. When Herod, the king of Judah, was there, uh, there was a Jewish, Jewish priest named Zechariah. 
He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife, Elizabeth, was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of, all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they both were very old. I love that last part. And by the way, they're both ancient. <laughs> So let's put a little bit of this in context, make sure we understand what's happening here. Again, Isaiah's prophecy we read at the beginning, 700 years has passed. There had been 400 years of absolute silence. And Zechariah and Elizabeth are very devout, godly people. So they knew about the promises, they knew about the prophecies, and they knew that there had been nothing for 400 years. Absolute silence. And then all of a sudden, God's going to choose, and we're going to see this in the next part, that God's going to choose to speak to them. Out of all the people to break the silence with, he chooses Zechariah and Elizabeth to break the silence. One thing I want to point out, and as we go through their story, I'm going to highlight a few aspects of their story that I think will be helpful for you and for me in this way. Even though we're not waiting for Jesus to be born, there's still a lot of things that we're waiting for, that you're waiting on. So in the midst of your waiting, I want you to put this in context. That's kind of your job this morning. Whatever you're waiting for, whatever you're waiting on, I think there's going to be some good lessons for us to learn from Zechariah and Elizabeth for how they waited. Just like all the other, other Israelites, they were waiting for this Messiah. But personally speaking, they were waiting for a child, a child that they had figured, well, this would just never happen. So while they waited, I want to point this out that it says, Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all the Lord's commandments and regulations. So even in the midst of their waiting, they still remained righteous with God. So oftentimes when we think about waiting, how about now? How about now? Can I have it yet? Is today the day? And when the answer is either no or no answer at all, think of the emotion that starts to come up. You get agitated, you get flustered, you get frustrated disillusioned. And at some point, the excitement that there's the gift turns into frustration because you can't have it right now, right? It, it switches. There's anticipation and excitement, but if you keep having to wait, it changes to frustration. And if it goes on long enough, I would use the word hopeless. You start to feel like, well, I'm told it's going to happen, but I don't think it ever really is. I don't believe it's ever going to happen. But for Zachariah and Elizabeth, we don't get the sense of hopelessness or frustrations or agitation because they remained righteous, careful to obey all of the Lord's commands. So here's my question I'll pose to you for, for us to begin to think through. Who do you become while you are waiting? When you're waiting in the line of the grocery store, who do you become? When you're waiting for your kids to move from the house to the minivan, who do you become? When you're waiting for a husband or a wife, who do you become? When you're waiting for that answered prayer to truly be answered the way that you want, who do you become? When you're waiting for that financial mistake to finally be in the past, who do you become while you wait? We could go on and on and on, situation and scenario after one another. Who do you become while you wait? They give us a great example that even in the waiting, I will remain righteous in God's eyes. So here's what happens next. Here's where the silence is finally broken. Verse eight, one day Zechariah was serving God in the temple for his order was on duty that week. 
As was custom of the priests, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. While the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. This hasn't happened in 400 years. While he was there, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear, as we all would have been, when he saw him. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. If you know the story of the Gospels, keep going through. This is John the Baptist we're talking about. We'll talk about his role here in just a second. Main part of this section is I want us to focus on what the angel said to Zechariah. The angel appears, Zechariah freaks out, understandable. And then the angel of the Lord says this thing first, which is very common anytime an angel shows up and freaks people out. The angel says, don't be what? Don't be afraid. It's like angel 101. When you appear to a human, say, don't be afraid. That's exactly what the angel says. Don't be afraid. We see that a lot throughout the Christmas story. But it's the second thing that the angel says that I really want us to hone in on. We expect the don't be afraid, but the next thing the angel said was this, God has heard your prayer. God, Zechariah, has heard your prayer. I know what you've been praying for. I know what you've been waiting for, not just about the Messiah, but you and your wife personally. I know your prayers and he's heard them. See, so often when we don't hear from God, when we don't think God is moving, when we don't see evidence of his hand in our lives and in the people around us, we make one of two assumptions. He's not there at all, or he doesn't care and he's not listening. Those are usually the two assumptions we make. Well, you just, you're just not there at all. Or you're there and you don't care. You're there and you're not listening. And the angel made it very clear. Yes, you've been having to wait. And no, I've not given you an answer, but I'm listening. So let me say this to you. Whatever you're waiting for, whatever you're waiting on, while you are waiting, God is still listening. God is still listening. Just because you're not seeing answers, just because you're not feeling a presence, doesn't mean he's not there and most certainly doesn't mean that he's not listening. God is most certainly listening to you while you are waiting. I love that he pointed that out to Zechariah. It wasn't just good news. It was good news, but you need to hear that I have heard your prayer was God speaking through this angel. So God is listening to you, so don't stop talking to him. The more silence you hear, the easier it is to stop talking. Don't stop talking to him. He still hears you. Here's the next part of the story. Now, this is when we start to get an idea of who John, this child, is gonna grow up to be and why the angel is involving Zachariah and Elizabeth. Like, what's the whole point? Like, what's going on? What's the plan? This is where the angel begins to tell Zachariah the plan. Verse 14, you will have great joy and gladness. Keyword there, you will. You mean more waiting here? <laughs> you will. It's not happening today, but you will. More promises. You will have great joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. That means a lot to the Israelites of these days. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. That's talking about the coming of Jesus. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Here, the super poetic and very cool way that the angel was explaining this. Here's what this means. 
John's gonna help people get ready for Jesus. And that's the whole purpose of John, as we would know, is John the Baptist. He was paving the way for Jesus. He went first to get people ready. He said, the Messiah is coming. Jesus is on his way. So John the Baptist paved the way for the ministry of Jesus. Here's why this aspect is important. Because there is a, we, a reason of waiting. We don't always see that reason, but there is a reason for the waiting. And here the angel is trying to help Zachariah understand that. He's like, I know you've been praying for this child and I know you've been waiting a long time. You're gonna have to wait just a little bit longer. But the reason you're having to wait is because the job of this child will be to get everybody ready for Jesus. So you're gonna have to wait until we're ready for that. There was a reason behind the waiting. It wasn't God just sitting around, not sure what to do and bored one day and said, ah, now we'll go ahead and do it. No, he was setting the stage for the birth of Jesus. And therefore he had to have John the Baptist wait, which means... Zachariah and Elizabeth also had to wait. What's fascinating about waiting is usually you don't see why you had to wait till after you're done waiting. Do you realize that? <laughs> so why couldn't that be on the front end? Because it would be easier to wait if I knew why I had to wait. It would be easier to wait if I knew exactly when the waiting would be done, but that's not the way it works. So we have to wait. And then finally, when the answer comes to the prayer, when finally the situation works out, we look back and we say, oh, that's why. That's the moment Zachariah's having now with the angel. Oh, that's why we had to wait. But there is a reason for the waiting. I love this last part. It doesn't really have much to do with what we're talking about this morning, but it's fantastic. And men, listen up. There's a lesson here. Verse 18, Zachariah said to the angel, how can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in her years. So the, the literal language there actually uses the word advanced. I'm old, she's advanced. There's a lesson there, men, in how you talk about this to, to anybody, but especially to an angel of the Lord. So we do, though, we learn a few things about Zachariah and Elizabeth through their waiting, right? We know that they're old. Zachariah has made that very, very, very clear. He's old, she's advanced in her years. So we know their age, we know they're old, we know that they were righteous in God's eyes. They continued to have hope. They continued to have faith. They continued to trust. They continued to serve. They continued to do what God called them to do, even when they weren't hearing from God. That's important. We also learn their names. Do you remember them? I've said them a bunch. His name was Zachariah. Her name was Elizabeth. Let me tell you why that's important. Both of those are Hebrew names. Zachariah in Hebrew literally means Yahweh remembers. Yahweh is the holy name of God, the, the name of God. If you see it in your Bibles, it'll be all uppercase L-O-R-D, the name of God. His name literally means Yahweh remembers. Elizabeth, the Hebrew name Elizabeth literally means God is my oath, or we would translate that into God's promise. So let's put those together for a second. You ready for this? 400 years during the intertestamental period, there was complete silence. Nobody heard anything from God. No prophecy, no vision, no angel, no nothing for 400 years. And the moment that God decided to break that silence, he spoke to a man and a woman. When you put their names together, literally mean God remembers his promise. Yahweh remembers. God is my promise. Tell me God's not working behind the scenes while we wait. 
God remembers his promises. He remembered all those prophecies and promises he made in the Old Testament. He said, and now I'm making them good. So here's what I would say to you. Like he told Zachariah and Elizabeth, let me tell you that God not just remembers his promises, but he keeps them. God remembers and keeps his promises. Now let's make sure that we don't think there's a promise there that doesn't really exist. Like, let me just give you one that's going to ruffle your feathers. Like, God never gives us the promise that we're going to be happy. Like, you're not going to find that in the Bible. So if you're like, man, God's not making me happy, I'm like, well, that's not a promise of God. <laughs> so you're going to have to get over that one. <laughs> he does promise joy. He promises peace. Remember what we just read out of Isaiah? Prince of peace, everlasting father, mighty God, wonderful counselor. Those are promises you can absolutely hold them to. The best promise I think that he's ever given us is the promise of hope promise of hope. And it's hope that we have because he made good on his promise with Jesus. Now, here's the great news for us today as modern day Christians and believers. We're not waiting for Jesus. He's already come. God has already shown us that he does keep and he does remember his promises, which gives me hope and faith that he's going to keep all the other ones too. If he can keep that one, if he will keep that one, then I have full faith and full belief and full hope that he'll keep all the other ones too the grace and the forgiveness, the trust and the love, the fact that he's with us. I mean, Jesus' name, Emmanuel, God is with us. That promise that he's constantly with us through the Spirit, through the Holy Spirit living in us. And those are promises that he remembers and he keeps. Later on, Isaiah said something else, not a prophecy, but an encouragement. So I want to leave you with this encouragement out of Isaiah chapter forty. Verses 30 and 31. Many of you are probably very familiar. Man, we love putting this one on t-shirts. Verse 30. Not this first part, the second part. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly. The sentence isn't over yet, but pause there for a second. Does that describe you today? Or at least in this season? Maybe not the youthful part. Maybe, maybe not. But do you grow weary and tired? Yep. Do you stumble badly? Yep. And so often we find ourselves in that spot and then we get stuck. I'm tired, I'm weary, and I'm broken, and I'm fallen, and I've got nothing left. And the waiting feels like it makes it worse. But then the encouragement in verse 31, yet, in other words, but the story's not over yet. This thought's not finished yet. Yet those who, and say this word with me, those who what? Wait for the Lord will gain new strength. You know what I love about new strength? It's not from me. It's not like I just mustered up something that's in me. No, it's something I don't have that I need. And so when God says through Isaiah, but you will gain new strength, he's saying, no, I'm gonna give you something you don't already have. What do you have? Tiredness, weariness, brokenness. But we will gain new strength and they will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. And they will walk and they will not become weary because of what he gives us that we do not already have. That's why we have hope. 
because God keeps and remembers his promises and he gives us what we do not have. Ultimately, a savior. Jesus. So whatever you're waiting for, whatever you're waiting on, keep waiting. But wait like Zachariah and wait like Elizabeth. Keep doing what you're called to do. Keep doing the right things in God's eyes. Keep holding on to your faith. Keep holding on to hope because God keeps his promises every single time. Every single time. Because he is, again, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and the prince of peace. If you would, if you'll close your eyes with me, I wanna give you a moment to do exactly what Isaiah told us to do to wait for the Lord. That word wait doesn't mean sit around and do nothing. It's a word of waiting, yes, but with anticipation. It's an active waiting. Just like Zechariah, they were waiting, but he was still serving the Lord in the temple. They were still going about all of their duties as husband and wife and also as followers of God. So as you wait, where's your heart at? Where's your heart at? While you wait, is Jesus in your heart? If you've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior, let me tell you this, don't wait for that one. He has already come. He is already here. He is knocking at the door of your heart, ready for you to invite him in. And he will be your wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace that saves us from what we cannot save ourselves from, that gives us what we do not have and cannot have on our own. Jesus, thank you for being who we need, for being Savior, for being our rescuer, for being mighty God and Prince of Peace and everlasting Father and wonderful Counselor. And thank you that we don't have to wait anymore. The 700 years that people had to wait from Isaiah's prophecy to Jesus, your birth, we don't have to wait for that. So may we not wait another moment because you are here and you are with us. May we invite you into our heart, into our mind, into our, our every day, into our everything. And as we wait for you to continue to move in our lives, may we trust that you're moving and may you give us that new strength so we can continue to wait on you. In Jesus' name, amen.